Several years ago on my birthday, I was sitting at the kitchen table with my family opening up birthday cards that had come in from family members and friends from, from church and, and others from, from around the country, from parents and, and siblings and such. And as I was opening up this pile of cards, I opened up one birthday card in particular, and as I opened it, a $100 bill fell out. And my daughter, who was just four years old at the time, she'd never seen any amount of money like that in person. And so she grabbed it and she said, look, Dad, her jaw has dropped, her eyes are wide, we are rich. And I just smiled and I, I gently removed it from her hand. And I said, no, sweetie, I am rich. <laughs> and then I handed it to her mother. <laughs> Today, we're continuing a teaching series called Baggage, where we're looking at some of, the, some of the stuff that we all carry with us that gets in the way of us understanding and dealing with some significant things in our life in a healthy way, in a, in a right way, in a, in a biblical way. And so we've talked about some difficult things, and, and today is no different. Today, we're talking about the baggage that we bring to money. And boy, do we have some baggage when it comes to money and finances and financial security. I share that story about my daughter grabbing that $100 bill because that, that moment taught me that, that our instincts, even at a very early age, are when we see something of value, in particular when we see money, our instinct, even if you're four years old or 42, our instinct is to grab it, to hold on to it, to try to keep it, to say, it's mine, and to try and find more of it. And yet, as you grow in faith, one of the things you learn is that God's desire is for us to reverse that impulse. Rather than try and hold on to as much as we can, his desire is for us to open our hands and let go of the things we have, trusting that we possess, as people of Jesus, something greater than what the world can offer. You know, our instinct is to lay hold of all of this temporary stuff as a way to secure a sense of peace and hope. But what the Christian faith tells us is that we already have peace and hope. And so we now have the ability to open our hands and let the way in which we use our stuff, in particular our money and our finances, reflect the hope that we have, not a sense of peace and hope that we're desperately trying to build. When it comes to the baggage that we bring to money, there's a lot that we could say. Uh, but I think the, the best way to illustrate all the baggage that we have when it comes to financial things is to, is to illustrate three lies that, that I've noticed in myself and in the lives of others, and that I think the scriptures speak to, that, that best summarize all of our baggage with money. There are three lies that summarize the baggage we bring to money stuff. And, and the first lie is this. If I had more, life would be easier. If I just had more money, life would be so much easier. Now, certainly, you know, some would say, you know, rich person problems are better than poor person problems. Like, okay, I get it. Life is understandably going to be more comfortable with more money. But, but one thing I've learned in talking to some people who have some significant means is that you just get different problems. It solves your previous ones and then hands you a whole bunch of other problems. And if you don't believe me, find somebody who's ever won the lottery and ask them if it made their life easier or more complicated. And the answer is probably going to be much more complicated. One of the lies we tell ourselves is if I just, I, all I got to do is get more, just get more and things get easier. So often, not the case. 
Second lie that we tell ourselves that represents so much of the baggage that we bring to money is this, that if I had more, I'd be more generous. I've heard people say to me in the context of talking about like biblical stewardship and tithing and things, I've heard people say to me, well, Pastor Matt, if, if, I, if I was rich, I would be the most generous person in the world. And whenever someone says something like that to me, my, my response is always a follow-up question. Well, how generous are you now? And they typically say, well, not as much as I'd like to be. So then I have to like get all like prophet pastor on them and say, well, I've got a, I've got a word for you. <laughs> If you're not generous now, chances are you won't be generous later. It is not about how much you have. Generosity doesn't flow from what's in your bank account or what's in your pockets. Generosity flows from your heart. The the scriptures put it like this. He or she who is faithful with a little, they will be faithful with what? A lot. And the opposite is true. He or she who is unfaithful or you could say ungenerous with a little will be unfaithful, ungenerous with a lot. A lie we tell ourselves is if I had more, I would be generous. Typically not the case. Third lie we tell ourselves that represents a lot of the baggage that we bring to money is this. The lie says, look, God doesn't care about what I do with my money. He just cares about my heart, which sounds very sweet. But the problem is that it's completely unbiblical. (laughs) Well, God cares about both. It's a a false dichotomy. God cares about both. In in fact, the scriptures talk a ton about money. So, for example, the Gospel of Luke, which tells us uh, the story of Jesus' life from Luke's perspective and the people that he talked to, virtually all of Jesus' teachings, it seems, in the Gospel of Luke have some connection to finances. Jesus himself talks about this a ton a ton. And the reason he talks about it a lot, the reason the scriptures deal with it a lot, is because God knows that, the, that there is power that money, finances, and stuff have over our heart, over our mind, over our entire lives. And because God cares about your heart and your mind and your entire life, guess what? He's got to talk about money. He's got to talk about it. Of course he cares what you do with your money because he cares about you and your heart and your life and your faithfulness to him and the blessing that you can be to the rest of the world. Uh, Those are just three of the lies that we tell ourselves that summarize just some of the baggage that we bring to this issue. Now, the question is, what do Christians do about it? How, How do they reconcile the baggage they bring to money so that, as I said at the beginning, The way in which we manage our money and our finances, whenever we've got a little or we've got a lot, is in step with the hope that we already have or reflects the fact that we already believe we have this deep peace and this great hope in Christ, rather than desperately trying to use whatever we have to get more stuff, thinking it's going to give us hope and peace. Well, you know, there are some who would step in and say, well, the path to aligning your finances with the things of God begins with financial discipline, and they give you a budget, or they give you a bunch of envelopes, and you only do cash, or whatever it is, I'm not, which, fine, that's great, but, but that's ultimately not how you solve this, and get what you do with your money and your finances and your stuff in line with the hope that you have in Jesus. Uh, First and foremost, we don't need discipline or different budgets. First and foremost, what we need is a fresh encounter with the wealth that we already possess in Jesus Christ. 
Now, you might think that that's kind of flowery, kind of idealistic theological language, but that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 1. Remember, he's addressing, in the Ephesian church, he's addressing practical, theological, financial issues and otherwise, and in the first chapter, he says, look, your ultimate problem is that you, you have yet to grasp the wealth that flows from you in the spiritual world from Jesus into your life right now. And no, we're not talking earthly wealth. We're talking about greater riches. Look, at, look again at what he says. This is a slightly different translation, starting at verse 18. Paul says, May the eyes of your hearts be enlightened. Enlightened to what? That you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, this, this future that he's called you to. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? In, in other words, I want your eyes to be opened to the tremendous, indescribable blessings that are coming to you in the world to come because you belong to the Father through Christ Jesus. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul is addressing a whole bunch of very real issues in the Ephesian church, and he could have opened his letter with, greetings from Paul, cut it out. But he doesn't. What he says is, I, I, wish, I wish you could grasp just how wealthy in the things that matter you already are, the inheritance that God has waiting for you, the power that he can demonstrate for you in the here and the now. I wish you could grasp that, because then we wouldn't have to be having this conversation. Here's what Paul knew about the Ephesian church, and here's what we know about ourselves, if we're being really honest. So many of our issues, in particular our financial issues, stem from this desperate need that we have for security and approval. And security and approval are not bad things. But, but very often we find ourselves clamoring for things, grasping and holding on to things, refusing to let go of things because we think it's going to make us safe. We have to get more. we got to feel more safe. And for many of us, that's some, some sense of financial security. And I don't think financial security is bad, but, but understand that so much of what drives it is this desperate urge to feel safe and secure. Or we, we, we chase after things, we grab onto things, we, we hold onto them and refuse to let go because we, we want to feel as though we're enough. And we think that having just a little bit more of this thing or that thing is going to make us feel approved in our own eyes, in the eyes of our peers, maybe even the eyes of God, if I can just get a little more, I'll have approval. I will be enough. If we're getting real, that's what drives a lot of this. I gotta be safe and I gotta be enough. And yet what the scriptures tell us over and over again, and Jesus loves to make this point, is that true safety, security, true acceptance, true approval, lasting, substantive, can... I mean, you know what I'm going to say. It can't come from stuff that we can beg, steal, and borrow here. It can only come from God. And of course, that's the gift that Jesus Christ gives to us. You have in Christ ultimate security, and you have in Christ the only approval that matters. The promise of Jesus is that when, when you came to faith in Christ... In particular, your moment of baptism, that's the moment we get to look at and, and, and see. In, in the moment of baptism, the moment of, of belief, of dependence upon the person and work of Jesus, 
The scriptures tell us that God wrapped all the goodness of Jesus around you. And now you wear the goodness of Jesus, his perfection, his holiness, his, his righteousness, his enoughness, you could say. He wrapped all of it around you, and now you wear it like a piece of clothing that you cannot see. But when the Father looks at you, what he sees is Christ and all that he is and all that he's accomplished wrapped around you. That is approval. The Father looks at you, and he sees his Son. And then he's promised you a place at his eternal table. He's promised you a place in his family so that you know that no matter how, how high the waters rise, no matter how scary life gets, uh, no matter even when death comes knocking at your door, nothing can pull you from your place in the father's family. That, that whether you have problems that come from being really wealthy or problems that come from being in poverty, none of those problems can pull you away from the guarantee of God's goodness toward you. None of it can take away your status as a forgiven, loved child of God. That is security. And Jesus has won all those things for you and given those things to you. And the challenge, let's put it like this, the opportunity in front of people of faith is to live with that reality in the forefront of our hearts and minds so that, so that as we are earning and saving and spending, we are doing it in such a way that we're trying to to earn and save and spend and gather and share in a way that reflects a hope and a peace that we already have and not a hope and a peace that we're desperately trying to manufacture by gathering and saving and spending. Does that make some sense? You're either going to utilize your finances in an effort to get peace or you're going to utilize it in a way that reflects a peace that you already possess. Which, if it's reflective of a peace you already possess, is typically gonna make you more generous. Now, let's get really practical. Like, what does this look like? Oh, goodness. Excuse me. Let's get really practical. What does this look like? Someone who is, who is keeping the fact that they have hope and peace security and approval in the forefront of their minds, secured by Jesus, and they're utilizing their resources in a way that responds to that and reflects that. What does it look like? Well, well, very simply, what you see throughout the scriptures, and Jesus points us to this, is that you will see people of faith doing two things. And when I say it, you're going to be like, oh, I knew that. I could have I I guessed that. The two things that God says, here's what you're going to do. If your hope is secure in Jesus, you're going to do two things with whatever wealth you have, a little or a lot. You're going to do two things. Number one, you're going to provide for your own needs. Yes, God says provide for your own needs. You get to be comfortable. You get to have stuff. But then, provide for your own needs, but then invest in his activity. And what, is, what does he define as his activity? Well, the, the growth of his kingdom. More people coming to know what you get to know. And generosity, love, and kindness towards your neighbors. God wants you to take some of what you have and say, all right, let's, uh, I'm, I'm going to take a, a big chunk of it to make sure that me and mine are okay. But then I'm going to take some of this and go, God's kingdom needs to move forward because I've been blessed by it and people need it. And there's these people around me who are, who are hurting and struggling, who, who need to know that they're loved, who need to know that they're seen and that they matter. So I'm going to take some of this and, and give this to them in acts of generosity and sacrifice and, 
and sharing. That's what the Lord wants you to do. That's what it looks like. And it sounds super simple, doesn't it? it, it it's simple, but, but it's not easy. There's a real practical example of this. In, of all places, the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. Now, I know some of you are like, oh, Leviticus, love that book. Have it memorized. So you know what I'm about to say. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. God is giving instructions to his people, the Israelites, about how they are to manage their fields. Remember, it's, it's an ancient culture. It's an agrarian culture. Uh, they, don't have, they don't have printed coins. They don't have a monetary system. What they have are fields and flocks, and that's their finances. And so God is not just giving them instructions on how to manage their field. He's giving them instructions on how to manage their personal finances. And he's giving them instructions on, on how to do this. And what he tells them to do uh, makes them really stand out in a world where everybody says, just keep and take as much as you can. Look at what he says. Leviticus chapter 19, starting at verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your field, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings or what falls, what falls on the ground after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God says, go ahead and harvest your fields. Harvest your fields. And then use it to provide for yourself and for your family. Go and sell it in the marketplace. Make a living. But... As you're harvesting your grain, as you're harvesting your field, stuff's going to fall on the ground, and your temptation is going to be to what? Pick it up and put it right back in your barrel. Or pick it up and put it right back in the bag that you're carrying with, the cart that you're pushing. When stuff falls to the ground, says, God says, fight the temptation, just pick it up and put it back in your possession. If it falls to the ground, leave it. And as you're harvesting your field, your temptation is going to be to say, I'm going to harvest all the way to the edge. My property line is here, so I'm going to harvest all the way to here and get everything that's mine. It's all my property after all, so I'm going to harvest all the way to the edge. God says, no, not only are you going to leave on the ground what falls to the ground, but I want you to leave a little margin all the way around your property of unharvested grain. Why? So that when someone who's in your midst who doesn't have what you have comes wandering through your field, or when there is a, a foreigner, a sojourner, who comes passing through what you possess, they can be blessed by what you have refused to use for yourself. Leave some left over for those who don't have what you have. And then God's reason is, I am the Lord your God, which is a way of saying, this is important to me. This is why you'll do it. This is how my heart is shaped as your God. I care about people other than you getting blessed, and I'm going to use you to bless them. And because it matters to me, it needs to matter to you. So don't harvest your field all the way to the edge. Now remember, this is an ancient agrarian culture where it was quite literally hand to mouth. And then you combine this with all of the other commands about tithes and offering, tithing the first fruits of your grain and of your flock, and, and everything else that needs to be brought to the temple, the, the ancient follower of God was, was giving a ton back to God and back to the people around them in such a way that an outsider is going to pass through and look at all that they're giving to the temple and all that they're leaving on the ground for the wanderer and the sojourner, they're going to be like, you're crazy. 
Why aren't you using everything that you can for your own blessing and benefit? That's nuts. One of the reasons why we have so many issues, so much baggage with money and finances, is because you and I, we begin with this assumption, whatever is my field is mine. Whatever falls to the ground, I have to grab. We begin with the assumption that everything I have, whether it's a lot or a little, all of it needs to be harvested, all of it needs to be used for me. All of it. And we leave, we don't even, we don't even assume that we should leave anything for anybody else. But, but a follower of Jesus who says, look, my hope is here. My peace is secure. I'm not clamoring for it with, with earthly things and gathering them and keeping them. They're going to feel some freedom. You should feel some freedom to say, look, it may mean that I have to live a little differently. It may mean that I, I won't have the same standard of living as this person so that I can have a higher standard of giving that I'm called to. It, it may mean some discomfort for me, but, but I'm free. I can give more, have less. I can. And if you try to embrace that, just be warned. Like people will still look at you and be like, you're crazy. You give that to other people? Like you could have, you could, you could have a Tesla. <laughs> like it drives itself, bro. You could have that. You need that. Why don't you have that? Why do you give this to somebody else? That's crazy how you let some of your field and what falls to the ground go to other people or some God that you worship. That's insane. People will still say that to you. It might mean a different standard of living in order to embrace a new standard of giving. So really practically, you know, this is why God's people have embraced things like tithes and offerings, not just in the Old Testament times, but, but today. You know, a tithe being setting aside the first and the best of what God has given to you to give back to the work that he's doing in the world through the local church and, and in acts of generosity to, to other people. Now, I know some of you might say, look, Matt, I've read enough of the Bible to know that the tithe is talked about in the Old Testament, but it's not explicitly commanded in the New Testament. Ha-ha. What I would say to you is this. You are right. There is no explicit command in the New Testament to give a tithe. But that's not because it has been abandoned or abolished. It's because it is assumed. And the New Testament is built on much of what is commanded in the Old Testament. And in fact, you could make a case that the New Testament standard is higher. Look at the words of Paul when he's writing to the New Testament churches. He's working on the assumption that those early Christians are giving first and best back to the local church, giving first and best to others, and all of it's a way of giving back to God. And then he's saying, look, you should seek to sacrifice. And your gift should, should reflect a sacrifice that's in line with or reflects the sacrifice of Jesus. What did Jesus do? He gave till it hurt, and he encourages the New Testament churches to be a cheerful giver, be a consistent giver, but be a sacrificial giver. And I've never encountered a sacrifice that doesn't pinch, that doesn't hurt, or cause a little bit of discomfort. That's what makes it, uh, exactly, yeah, you're following with me. You're following with me. Now, there are some who say, all right, man, I see where you're going here. But I, I will start to, to, to leave some margin in my field when I'm at a place where I've got more flexibility to do that. Or because I want to do it from a genuine heart space, 
I just made that up. Because I want to do that from a place where it's really genuine. I want to be in the right frame of mind to do that. Uh, I'm going to wait until I'm ready, financially and emotionally. And to that, I would say, like, do, like, do you have kids? Some people say, I'm going to wait to have kids until I'm ready. <laughs> and then you have kids and you realize, I was not ready. <laughs> and then you realize that in the having of the kids, it what? it makes you ready, right? The same is true with generosity. If you wait till you're generous, you will never be generous. But in the act of attempting to be generous, it forms you in to a generous person. That's what it does for you. You, you could put it like this. You might not care about the iPhone 14 that was released last week. You might not care about it. I care about it. You might not care about it. You might not care about the Super Retina XDR always on screen or the 48 megapixel camera that it now has. Or let's talk about the Apple Watch Ultra. You might not care about the Apple Watch Ultra and the dual processors that it has and the fact that it is waterproof down to 40 meters, even though I don't know how far 40 meters is. You might not care about that. I care, but you might not care about that. But watch, watch. If I were to come to your house, knock on your door and say, hey, it's your lucky day. I'm gifting you a thousand shares of Apple stock. Guess what? You'd care. Or better yet, if your spouse comes home from work and she looks at you and she says, hey, honey, I made a big financial decision on behalf of the family without asking you. I took our entire retirement, like every penny of it, all of it, and I used all of it to buy Apple stock. Two things would happen. Number one, you would call a counselor for you and your spouse. You made what decision without me? And number two, you would care a whole lot a whole lot about Apple stock. You'd be checking that stock price every day. Your prayers would be different. You'd be praying, Lord, let the iPhone 15 next year change and rule this world. You know, Jesus put it like this. Where your treasure is, there is your what? It's funny how that works. I'm going to give a challenge to you. We say we care about the poor. If you would like to care more about the poor, give to the poor and see what happens. We say we care about stopping human trafficking in Houston, which is a significant issue in Houston. If you care about stopping human trafficking in Houston, give to stop human trafficking in Houston, and you'll care even more. Watch what happens. And the same is true with all the things of God. If you care about getting your, your life and your heart and your finances in line with the things that matter to God, start giving to the things of God and watch what happens. Like, I, I'm just the mailman. I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there is your heart. So if you want more of your heart to be in something, put your treasure in it and watch what happens. Test and see. It's okay. Now, if you're an unbeliever and you're here, I got good news for you. None of what I've talked about applies to you. <laughs> for real, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I have no expectation and the Christian faith has no expectation of you giving to a God you don't know. So you're off the hook for, for all of this. My, my prayer for you instead is that you would know that there is a greater hope than that which you can manufacture on your own, that there is a deeper and more sustainable and lasting peace than what you, can, what you can patch together with the work of your own hands and your desperate clamoring and building with the one life that you get. But if you are here as a follower of Jesus Christ, my, my prayer is that you would, 
you would take this seriously. And that you would understand that in me preaching this sermon to you is not me trying to take anything from you, but really and truly me as your pastor trying to give something to you. If you say, look, how can my life in terms of how I manage my finances more align with what I know to be the heart of God? Just ask that question. How can my financial life more align with what I know God cares about? The people, the places and things God cares about. If you take that seriously and you make some tweaks and changes, you will be blessed. You will be challenged by it and you will grow from it in all the right ways. But other people around you that you care about will be blessed. They will because they're going to be on the receiving end of that. Look, I share these stats with you not to lay any guilt at all, even though I know that that might happen, okay? I just want you to be informed. Did you know, according to Barna Research, that 50% of people who identify as Christians in the United States, 50% give nothing, not only to their church, but give nothing in terms of charitable giving at all. 50% of people who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, give nothing. And among those who do give, among the 50% that do give, on an annual basis, it's between 2 and 3% of what has been given to them. That's crazy, right? Now, what if, just our church talking to us, what if like, we moved that needle in, in, in the right direction just, just a little bit? Like, what, what kind of holes could we punch in the darkness? What kind of damage could we do in a good way in things that matter to God. Even if we just move that needle a little bit, but, but it starts with you and me and all of us going, I could, I could assess what I'm doing financially and try to align it a little more with the hope that I already have. If, if just some of us took that seriously just a little bit, we would, we would make a dent. Because the bar is I'll close with this. I'm sure you've heard of Alfred Nobel. And this is a well-known story, so maybe you know this story. But, but Alfred Nobel, at the time that he was alive, he was, he was one of the wealthiest and most famous people in the world. And he had amassed an incredible fortune by being an inventor. He'd invented a number of things. But his primary invention was, does any of you know? It was dynamite. His primary invention was dynamite. And boy, did that blow up. But boom. He got real rich, real fast. One day, Nobel's brother, Ludwig, his brother, Ludwig Nobel, died. But the local newspaper in Alfred's hometown made a mistake. They thought Alfred had died. And they printed an obituary for Alfred Nobel. And so the day after his brother dies, Alfred gets up, reads the morning paper, and he reads his own obituary. And it says, among other things, Alfred Nobel, the merchant of death, has died. Alfred Nobel, who through his invention of dynamite made it possible to kill more people in a more gruesome fashion than any other person that existed before him, has passed away. And Nobel was, of course, mortified that this this was going to be his legacy. This is what he was known for. And so he made a commitment to give away his wealth to celebrate people who have benefited humanity through their work. And of course, now, fast forward to today, and, and everybody know, knows about Alfred Nobel's prize, but few people know how he made his fortune. 
And, and what happened is he came to a realization that, that few of us come to, but, but we should, is, is that, look, in many ways you can, you can make it in life and yet still miss the point in life. What, what, it, what good is it to amass certain wealth if you don't spend it and leverage it on things that matter? Or as Jesus himself said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? May we, as a church, may we be people who understand just how wealthy we are. And may we be generous like nobody else. May we know the hope and peace that we have. And may it loosen our grip so that we can do little things, big things, extravagant things with what we have to give hope and peace to others. Amen.